Welcome to the second episode of Dead Cat. I'm Eric Newcomer, uh, the newsletter writer who named his newsletter after himself. I'm here with Tom Dotan and Katie Benner. You guys just want to say hello? Hey. Hey, 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 newcomer. And uh, we're here with Christina Cassiopo. Did I get that right? You got that right. <laughs> Thinking about our sep- second episode and sort of, I was, I was talking to Katie, you know, who used to cover the tech industry is now covering the Justice Department. And she was like, oh, you know, what, what are the cool startups these days? And, you know, I sort of struggled because it is sort of amazing how we write about the same, you know, companies over and over again. It's, you know, it's still, I still write a ton about Uber and, you know, Stripe is still cool after all these years. But then, you know, I thought about uh, Christina's company, which, you know, when we talked, Vanta was clearly about to raise like a cool uh, Series A and she'd been very sort of withholding on taking venture money and raised a $50 million quote unquote Series A um, at a $500 million valuation. So Christina, I mean, how, tell us a little bit about that story. How are you, is that really a series A round in, in what sense or how did that, just tell us that story a little bit. And a little bit about what your company does as well. For sure. So Vanta automates security and compliance for other startups. Um, starting with, started with a SOC 2 certification and now cover ISO and HIPAA and a whole alphabet soup of things, but but basically helping other startups get secure and then demonstrate that they're secure to other people, often their buyers. Um, so the Series A per our legal documents, uh, which is probably the <laughs> most legalese answer I could give you, like is the first equity round into the company. So technically, yes. Um, doesn't look like your standard Series A, even in the you know 2021 Tiger era. Um, but is is technically uh, our Series A. I, I mean, you you'd been in venture sort of briefly, what Union Square Ventures, right yep. before. Yeah. I mean, how how did that shape sort of how you thought about sort of building the cap table for the company? A ton. Um, you are just kind of being exposed to some of these decisions, and this was like a decade ago. Um, you realize you're really hard to change uh, when someone's on your cap table. It's it's near impossible to to get them off if you ever wanted to do that. Um, and so they're kind of one-way door decisions like in startup parlance. So some of, of trying to be thoughtful in that sense. Um, and then the other part was, I think, uh, we talked about this in March or whenever that was, but trying to be thoughtful about how you know, money might be important to grow the business, but it's not the point of the company. And, and you know, uh, VCs can be helpful, but they're not they're not kind of the arbiters of the of company success. How much leverage did you feel like you had just with the Series A to be able to handpick the people that you could bring onto your cap table? I mean, it's so interesting talking to other founders who will say, I mean, you know, there's almost like a, a I don't want to say desperation to it, but you know, you don't feel like you really have a ton of leverage in that first round to be able to say you're in, you're out, and I can call the shots in a way that sets me up for not getting fucked over by these guys later on. Yeah, yeah. So look, I mean, I think if we'd raised, you know, whatever, two years before at the standard, like, million dollars in revenue, we would have been, like, cast a wide net and get the best person you can and, like, hold on to your hat, sort of. Um, but having waited a while and having a like cash flow break even business, that was $10 million in revenue and nearly a thousand customers and all, you know, and like 
be like, oh, you know, usually in a Series A, it's it does do, do you have product market fit, you know, and we don't we don't think about customer acquisition, and then you show up and you're like, I've acquired a thousand customers at like really good economics, um, so definitely felt you know much more confident there. I will also say though. I don't know, like anything else, you have these moments where you're like, oh, I'm on top of the world. Like, I get to choose everything. And then, you know, four hours later, you're like, who would want to fund this business? Why are we <laughs> even working on it? Right. And so that roller coaster is still there. Um, it's just even it's just divorced from reality, which is, of course, in between the two poles. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the specifics of fundraising in this era, particularly fundraising as a female founder. I, I remember when I was a reporter hating, hating, hating getting pitched on companies only because the founder was female, which happened all the time. And it was, uh, I found it really offensive and terrible that that was an actual pitch that was going out. At the same time, my colleague Aaron Griffith just wrote a story about women trying to raise money being often compared to Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos. And as we all know, Theranos uh, flamed out under you know, a lot of accusations of fraud and wrongdoing and that Holmes is, is going to be making an appearance in federal court soon over this disaster. So I was wondering if you felt that story was accurate, if, you know, there were things about raising money as a woman that have changed from a few years ago that haven't changed or if people are thinking less about gender today. Yeah, a few thoughts. I did read the article. Uh, I laughed because I think that was the only reasonable reaction. Um, I have been. (laughs) Everything else would just not have been good. Um, uh, I have been jokingly compared to Elizabeth Holmes, right? And you're like, B2B SaaS security startup, right? But it's like, oh, Stanford female entrepreneur. Like, I know one of those. And you're like, uh Oh, right. Anyway, moving on. Um, Is that really profession- how it goes? I mean, <laughs> the, the, the depth of thought that VCs have when a company comes in, it's a female founder, like, oh, like Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. Like, so this wasn't a professional. That's the only connection that they'll make. Yeah, this wasn't a professional VC. But like, yes, it was one of those where you're like, I- I'm glad I'm not blonde. Like, I'm not quite sure what to say next. <laughs> right. more Probably shouldn't wear a turtleneck to the, uh, to the next no. meeting. No. Um, I'll speak at a high, you know, high tone of voice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah. What are we doing? I think what people haven't recognized enough is what Elizabeth Holmes did to people who naturally speak in a low tone of voice. Exactly. That, that is the way some people speak. I don't know. The people who like, like turtlenecks, like they're the ones who are suffering here. Yeah. It's a real fashion. Yep. Um, but j- jokes aside, so uh, yeah, and I mean, I think those are like offhand comments that, I mean, on one hand, actually for me, like they get said and you're just like, I don't even know how to respond. So we're just going to move past that. Uh, and then, you know, of course, several hours later, you come up with something good and snarky that it's much too late to use. Um but I don't think they're, I mean, maybe the most striking slash damning part is like, I don't think they're met with malice or people like are being, you know, like trying to find common ground and similarity and sort of allied over the uh, also may have, you know, defrauded 10 million people fact. And like, that's not something that it's nice to compare someone to. Uh, but I don't truly don't think that's top of mind. I think it's just a little bit of kind of speaks to how few female founders there still are, right? Where the top of mind one is someone who is now on trial for fraud. Um, uh, and you're like, well, we, we need some more here. Who are and some of his company is quite old too. You know, I right. do wonder if a young founder coming, you know, who had worked as a venture capitalist, who had a resume similar to yours, but who was a man, if in meetings somebody would say, wow, you really remind me of Brian Chesky. I mean, that's like old. <laughs> yeah. That's that's right. long time but ago. They, lo- they love, you know, pattern matching. I mean, I can right. see, I'm, I'm not defending it in any way, but it's such a, 
yeah, they can't help themselves would say, oh, you fit the profile of this. And then when But if that's the only pattern the matching you can do, right. it means you do not know right. enough women if the right. only woman right. you know is Elizabeth Holmes. Um, I think there's some of that. I think, so fundraising this time, I mean, it was really different. Uh, some of it was business results. And some of it just, it was all over Zoom, right? I did this on kind of early... 2021 and so everyone was on zoom and uh i mean one effect of it is it just sped everything up and i'm not you know what i saw you know the industry saw but there was just it sort of turned everything into the days after a yc demo day when you sort of know the company is like running around and having 47 meetings a day right like that became everybody's financing process because they could just sit on zoom for 14 hours straight and they didn't have to like drive down to sand hill and schedule someone's admin and like oh the person's you know whatever uh and that just sped everything up hugely because you could credibly say like hi i'm having meetings from this day to this day um i'm looking forward to term sheets on this day and i'll make a decision by this uh and people would be like oh they're that's probably true so we have to follow the timeline um which again, in a like non-Zoom world, people would be like, oh, it's gonna slip, you know, like, oh, is she really gonna fly out to New York and back, you know, blah, 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 blah. So just, was it better, was it easier to raise money over Zoom? Totally, yeah, 9,000%, yeah. What specifically about it? I mean, obviously you can probably knock out more meetings in a day because you don't have to, you know, schlep your ass up around Sand Hill Road, but like, is there anything specific to the dynamic there that you think is, you know, foundationally different to how it was done previously, especially as a VC and like having these people come in and pitch you. Yeah. I mean, I mean that power dynamic, right? Cause like as an entrepreneur and we would do like, you'd come in and they'd sort of be like, Oh, where do I sit? And then they sort of like sit at the end of their chair. And meanwhile, like all the VC people are like sitting in their normal chairs, like taking up a lot of space on their chairs just cause that's their chair. Um, uh, you know, be like you'd have your like glass of water that you're like balancing your laptop with, and then you like don't know if you can put the water on the table. You know, just like all of that nonsense, right? Of like unfamiliar environment. Like, what if I spill my water on their nice carpet? Isn't uh, that better for the VCs though? I mean, don't they appreciate that sort of power dynamic? They're oh, like, totally. <laughs> they've immediately put you at unease. I mean, I know yeah. like from covering the the entertainment industry, and maybe another episode I can share my story of like meeting with uh, a very high level agent who played all kinds of bullshit power games with me, making me sit in different chairs to sort of humiliate me. And I'm not saying VCs do that intentionally, but like, you know, part of the mystique of being a venture capitalist is that they're in charge and like them owning the room is probably a part of that, no? I think it like maybe somewhat like, I don't know, unintentionally, but like they don't, you know, it's just part of life, right? It's not really thought, thought through. Um, there was one firm in New York that shall remain nameless that I remember a decade ago going into, like, I was a VC associate, met another VC associate. And he was like, oh, let's go into this room where we meet entrepreneurs. It's literally a desk with two chairs. And one was like a giant, you know, like leather work chair. And the other was like a folding chair. <laughs> right? <laughs> so you're like, oh, this is how you meet entrepreneurs. Cool. Right. <laughs> Never coming back right. here. I'm curious, uh, your, I mean, your experience with the media so far. I mean, I sort of talked about you know, the glut of just attention on these same brands. I'm curious how you experienced that or what your experience of sort of like working with the press has been so far. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the primary, so we did, we kind of did some press around the financing and, and y'all know this better than I do, but just being like, hi, we have some numbers to share in a, you know, big VC firm. Like, would you like to write about that? I think since it's been 
interesting and that, you know, from my perspective, I want to go out and say, hey, Vanta's launching this new product that happens to be a security or compliance product. So it's not something that we find tech reporters super enthralled about writing about. Um, <laughs> getting some funny looks. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, don't, I love HIPAA. I don't know why you don't love HIPAA. I, I always um, joke that even at Bloomberg, we never wrote about companies proportional to the market cap, right? Even the most businessy of business places, the amount of money it generates, they don't, they don't necessarily you know. cover it that way. It yeah. needs to be a good story. Yeah. And I mean, the feedback I've gotten a little bit is like, oh, well, why don't you go tell your story, Christina, and sort of looping back to the female founder piece, like, oh, you know, why don't, why don't you, no one has actually asked this, but like, what about those female founder profiles from three years ago? Um, And you're sort of like, what about them? (laughs) You know, that feels like a little bit of a minefield, but generously. I mean, you kind of gestured to the fact that a lot of those female founder profiles didn't turn out well in the end because... It was um, the arc was they rose very high and then they came down really hard. So, yep. you know, do you feel like that was something that was unique to those profiles, or do you feel like that is something that goes hand in glove with whenever there's a lot of hype around the personal story of a founder? Oof. I mean, I think yeah, a lot of I do feel a little bit like inviting hype around the personal story, and to some extent, making the story about in my case, myself and not the company is sort of like inviting bad things to happen in the future. Like it is just not, you know, not something we've done, not something I'm excited about doing at all. Um, uh, Yeah, it's sort of like you're just kind of asking for the subsequent wave of, you know, here's all the terrible broken things at the company. And uh, I think kind of thinking about the stories like that, that have been written about some of these companies, there were some terrible broken things at them. I think that the next question is like, is that how true was that of, you know, other other quickly growing growth stage companies were these actually outliers? Um, not to say the things that were happening were good or to condone them or anything like that. But I think there's just like a wider awareness of how isolated or not some of these behaviors may have been. What sticks out to me on this, I'd be interested in your thoughts here, is that a lot of these stories about female founded companies that end up, you know, going uh, the other direction is that there's a huge amount of <laughs> Very focus. euphemistic of you there. Yeah, yeah. Is that they end up like... Blowing up spectacularly. <laughs> right, yes. But, but also like very personally, right? There's always yes. like an extreme personal element to yes. these stories that drives the narrative. It's like this person was a maniac. This person right. was a, a slack terrorist and they were, you know, getting into fights with co-founders or it, it just seems like it's less about you know, this business maybe wasn't very well run or, right. you know, it, the, the fundamentals were weak. It's like, no, they were an asshole. And right. But I mean, that's good storytelling. That's what we were just saying about Parker, though, how people love the condoms and the stairwells, you know, not the actually even, the revenues have flipped, you know, are way down. And but even the Parker case, I mean, that was like, you know, there was uh, allegations of flouting, you know, insurance rules and, and stuff. And he was I largely don't painted as totally incompetent. Right. Yeah, it but was not an asshole, personal. right? Mm, it was personal. Like, ma- Did it feel a- personal? If a man is accused of being an asshole, is that really a criticism? But if a man's accused right. of being incompetent, yes. that is a real criticism. And if a woman's sure. accused of being an asshole... I mean, one of the reasons why Christine Quinn did not become mayor of New York is because there was a big story saying she was a jerk. And what's so crazy about that is that one could argue she might have been a better mayor than Bill de Blasio. <laughs> Very controversial. <laughs> <That's impossible>. <laughs> <laughs> 
But anyway, uh, no, I mean, do, do you feel that at all? I mean, you know, I guess you're you run a great company, and this will never happen to you. But definitely, but, you know, the, the, the stories <laughs> that get written seem to be so much more personal. And yeah. I guess you know, there's a smaller number to pull from because there are just fewer companies that do have female founders. But um, I just think as a journalist, it's 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 glaring to me. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, you can, well. Someone, someone actually shouldn't do this because it'll probably be depressing. But like, if you go back and look at like the coverage of Facebook in the 2000s, right? Like, there was a lot of like management turnover. But I think a lot of those stories ended up being like they didn't align, or I mean, co-founder turnover, or whatever. But it was a lot like, oh well, they didn't get in line with Zuck's vision, and so they were out. Clearly, because that's what you would do, right? Where. That's not how we write about, I don't know, outdoor voices or whomever, right? It's like this founder is a tyrant and needs to, you know, be removed. I mean, I do think it's just this complicated consumer brands help fuel it. There are a lot of prominent female-led consumer brand companies, but also the whole female founder sort of persona issue that Katie talked about. So, yeah, well, it, so it's, it's, it's hard to, like, separate those. Were, the, the companies themselves were selling an image of a certain kind of person which mm -hmm. is also very tricky you know so if in your branding and your marketing for your project you're celebrating a you know um, this 21st century woman who is you know socially conscious and values equality and you know values a respect for others and then the personality of the founder seems to run counter mm -hmm. to that that's also an added layer of complication right that you probably aren't going to have if your company is making, um, you know, if, 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 if you are Compliance. making enterprise software, <laughs> for example, you know, right. you know right. it, won't, it won't be like, wow, Chris, Christina was such a hypocrite. She said right. that everybody who used her software was gonna run around in size two leggings and look hot <laughs> while also fighting for equality and look what happened. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's just right. sort of a different thing. No, I, I, I wish I was That's not your wife. pitch. It's sort of glossier, but like, I, I'm not that person. I just, I just follow her on Instagram. By the way, I love Emily Weiss and everything better. Oh <laughs> I mean, maybe this is a true, actually, financing story. There's one term sheet I negotiated while wearing a glossier sweatshirt. No one else cared, but I was so proud of myself. I, I think what I love is that I read into the gloss for so long before she started glossier. I just, I loved everything about that blog. I don't wear any makeup. I don't really own any, but I really liked her blog. And she understands the media really well. She understands like why consumers like products, um, sort of this idea that they provide magic. And so, you know, she, she, I, I just thought it, I thought it was very cool. So if somebody writes a Glossier takedown story, I'm going to be real sad, real sad. Likewise. <laughs> Do you think there's any benefit then to, I mean, again, you, you run a, a company that has a solid business. I don't really know what value there is to, you know, spending a ton of time pitching media on, on more publicity on your company other than maybe, you know, getting more customers or something. But um, Recruiting, right? Recruiting, or, yeah. I, these are kind of the things. We sell to startups. And so there is just a bit of like, yeah. how do you, I mean, we like to think we're very large and if anyone's listening, you know, we're, we're very large and competent, but no, like kind of like playing bigger than we are. And like, uh, aren't we mentioned in the same sentence as, you know, Uber, even though you're like, oh, it's kind of hilarious and ridiculous. Right. Anyway. So there's like, I mean, that part of like the Silicon Valley play bigger piece is, is it's real because it does matter so much, whether or not it should, it definitely does. The, the recruiting piece. I am curious just quickly on, or not, you know, on that, I mean, it's always so front of mind 
for founders and just what, what the environment is right now when you're trying to hire people and there are so many companies with such high evaluations and what, what that experience has been like? It's clearly like it's a new norm. I mean, I think all the reasons that like the rapid financings are great for entrepreneurs, uh, they're also great for people, for job searchers. Right. Because you can have 14 interviews a day and you can get your offers in three days and then you're, you know, you can bake off companies however you want. And like it's all true. And like as much as it, you know, not super helpful to Vanta, like candidates should do that. Um, uh, and I think that so there, anyway, so there's that dynamic, like the Zoom, Zoom speeds things up dynamic applies in recruiting. The other dynamic is, you know, everyone is tiger funded and a unicorn. And so uh it is harder to stand out, even if you're like, no, no, we actually have a good business. Like, we're, we're the real ones. Um, there's and there's a, a sense they chase high valuations. Or how much yeah. do you think that's true? I mean, where they're, yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this with Parker, right? I mean, just assessing comp based on the valuation times their shares versus, yeah, the potential upside, I guess. Yeah, I think it's very true. I mean, I was, I am, you know, kind of to this day, staunchly, like, you know, Vanta is the same company. I mean, yesterday and today, the day before the Sequoia financing and the day after, like, and candidates do not see it this way. Like, recruiting got incrementally easier to us after that round. Same company, but it matters. Uh, and so, like, I'm just pulling that forward. You're like, would a billion dollars matter? Like, probably. <laughs> do I hate that? Yeah, definitely. Just, but. I'm sorry, just, just having the Sequoia, like, imprimatur on the business made recruiting easier? Yep. More, more inbound candidates and incrementally easier to close because they felt like it was a more de-risked business. Because they felt that there was support, uh, support from a firm that they believed would be there when times got rough, support from a firm. <laughs> that's, one of the, that's one of the fascinating things because the idea of the role that VCs play, you know, when we spoke with Parker last week, he very much put forward the thesis that when times are good, VCs are there for you. When times are bad, they kick you out. Obviously, that comes from a very personal experience. But it is interesting that for a prospective job candidate, that they would see VCs as this on balance force for good. Oh, yeah. They're kingmakers. Like, they have the magic touch. Um, I wanted to get... Um, to vent a little bit and sort of the business and understanding it. Um, well, I guess we, we, you'll give your uh, 20-second description better than I will. So will you just quickly sort of describe the business as is today? I guess that's your first 30 seconds. And then sort of the broader aspirations of it, just so we have that. For yeah, people. for sure. So today we work with generally startups, helping them, and generally B2B startups. So some tool, they're selling to other businesses. Um, as some part of that sales process, they get asked like, hey, are you secure? If we give you a bunch of data, are you going to leak it on the internet? Um, so we help those businesses kind of shore up their security initially and then get some sort of compliant certification, probably a SOC 2 that sort of says, yes, someone looked at us. We are reasonably secure. You can buy us. And, and the incentive issue. is basically because they're customers will want them to have this and yes. then so in pitching big customers you're you're giving them this signal yes exactly so like the big customer is going to say hey you know love your product but you know you're 10 people you know on a couch basically how can we trust you uh and so you're like ah i've gone through this process i had someone look at all these things i they wrote up this long report like we're very reasonable over here on the couch <laughs> you could trust us but then 
the long term, the goal is to come up with your own standard or what, what can you say about that? I mean, it's not like, I don't know, SOC 2 doesn't sound like the most thought through standard ever, not being an ex- expert in it or. Yeah, yes. SOC 2 is incredible product market fit. <laughs> um, I can say that. Um, I mean, it's just used by everyone and everyone asks about it. Right. And including people who don't kind of know precisely what it is but it sort of doesn't matter it is just like the imprimatur of the first way you say like and baseline reasonable um so yeah one thing we think a lot about is you know there's some good parts and some less thought through parts like how can we kind of work with security leaders to design something that actually thinks about you know the true security in a 2021 sense and all that it takes to keep a company secure in 2021 and applies that on a continuous basis too. Cause that's the other thing about these reports is they're sort of done point in time. Someone comes in last, like on Tuesday, asks you a bunch of questions, writes the report, you're good for a year. Um, and that's not how software works. So uh, we're, we're working on that. What would incentivize companies to want to participate in a harder standard or like, why would the market ever incentivize, you know, businesses to be sort of self-regulating in that way without the government requiring it? Yeah, it's sort of twofold. I think the uh, boogeyman answer, which is I think the less strong one, is like at some point the government will care. And so can the industry sort of get its act together ahead of time? Um, So this happened with credit cards, like PCI DSS, if those letters sound vaguely familiar. Um, Vaguely. Vaguely. Basically, they came out of like early credit cards. The banks were mail-in credit, like five credit cards to everyone, no matter who they were. Um, At some point, the government was like, this is, you know, extending this much credit to everyone willy-nilly is probably not what you want to be doing. If you guys don't fix this, we're going to come in. Anyway, so that kind of got that ball rolling. This first bit, I think when we think about like the Biden administration's priorities, software security for SaaS vendors is, you know, probably probably below the cut line currently at least uh to say i think the better answer really is because the customers get hurt right so like if uh uh to be clear this is like totally hypothetical but like you know if um what's a good example uh in the sony hack if like sony's you know google docs gets breached it's, the headline might be Sony gets breached. The headline might be Google gets breached. And either way, it's a bad look for both of them. And so they're actually kind of organizationally pretty incented to, to make sure like those headlines don't get written. Um, and so in, you know, schmancy industry terms, this is like third party risk management. But it's basically just when you use software, if it gets breached, it looks like you get breached. No one wants that headline. How do you make sure it doesn't happen? Have you been able to come up with ways to get around the media for things like recruiting? You know, so in, in a world where mm. the media is not the best um, fit in some ways for you to tell your story, you know, what other tools do you have at your disposal when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to raising awareness? Customer acquisition doesn't seem to be a problem for you at all. You certainly don't need. I don't. I don't think that a. I don't think that a New York Times Every, business story as a is going business to help person, you now, Everybody wants more customers. True. Everybody wants more customers. Right? True. That's true. True. Everyone true. wants more customers, but you know, it's there. The Wall Street Journal is probably better than the New York Times in some ways, if that's what you're looking for. I should. Though the New York Times is wonderful for so many other things, um, you know. So what what do you, what other tools do you have other than the media? Yeah, I mean media adjacent, but I think 
just the last few years, the rise of Substack and podcasts and like I am, you know, talking to somebody, right? But like truly are, it feels different than the media. Uh, some of them are certainly friendlier. Like uh, we sort of did this of like, yeah, you know, where did the glowing founder profiles from the media five years ago go? And like now they're podcast interviews. Um, uh, and so I think, or, you know, like, Paid, like promoted sub paid for sub stacks. Uh, but I think those are real. Um, and you know, we'll just get bigger. Um, what else? I mean, there's like the recruiting stuff is just always a slog. Right. Uh, and so that's actually a place where I think the best companies figure out word of mouth with recruiting, which is just to say, have employees recruit other employees. Um, and that's sort of the only thing. Do, do you buy the argument that bubbles up from time to time that there is a, a real option for founders to completely obviate the media and just go oh. through, whether it's podcasts or, I don't know, cool retweets from from guys with 100,000 followers, most yeah. of them are bots, um, uh, promoting the company. And there is like kind of an internal, less public-facing network that you could use that just doesn't require you to waste your time with idiots like us. Uh, you're telling me to channel my inner Elon. Elon, Balji, um, you know, any any of the guys who decide to make it their life's calling to, I don't know, uh, make the media irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, less their, like, anti-media screeds, but more just the reach those people have. Like, I do actually think there's something there. And, like, I wish I were better at Twitter than I am. Like, I actually think it would help Vanta, uh, you know. I do actually think there is something real there. I think most people don't do it well um, or don't do it. But yeah, the people who do it well, actually I have a founder friend, Amjad Massad from Replit. He's actually really good at this. He's quieted down a little bit in the last few months, but he's really good at this. Like he, he can, he can like, everything is about the company, but it is funny and fun and like clearly has a sense of humor and just totally and, and you think that that helps him with recruiting? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a direct connection yeah. between that and interesting. Yeah, yeah. You had 55 employees when we spoke. How many do you have now? 110. How's managing that? <laughs> um, well, I've never seen them all in person. So, you know, still TBD. We're, we're planning for that, but it hasn't happened yet. So I don't know if they all exist. No, um, uh, every day is a new, every week is a new week at Vanta. For mostly good reasons. <laughs> when you're growing this quickly, <laughs> every week is a new week. You could probably, I would say, get five to ten new employees out of this podcast interview. <laughs> <laughs> I will let you know. People come in and say, like, oh, we heard you on this yeah. podcast, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, if you, if you apply for a job at Vanta, use uh, promo code DEADCAT. <laughs> <laughs> we, Please we, don't we got bring us a dead cat. Just say the word. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah, we, get, we actually get, like, a small, we have, like, a Lambda school situation where we have a... Uh, a uh, shared what did, what do they call those shared revenue income shared something. income agreements yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah we got to get one of those set up that sounds like a great deal cool thanks cool. so much thank you. thanks Christina Google goodbye Silicon Valley Goodbye, 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 goodbye.